Welcome to author's reading of moderate fundamentalists, Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat in the Lens of Cognitive Science of Religion, published by De Gruyter Academic Press in 2017. The monograph has nine chapters. Chapter 1, Introduction. I grew up calling two men my father. In the West, where many people have a biological father and a stepfather, this is not as unusual as it was in Pakistan where I grew up. I did not meet my biological father, Maulana Ali Hadarupal Shaheed, until I was seven years old. The only contact with my father during my early childhood was his weekly letters and the occasional black and white photograph that he mailed us from West Africa, where he was working as a missionary. My mother says that my primary motivation for learning to read was to be able to read Abhijan's letters on my own instead of having to beg her to read them to me. The older man in whose house we lived and whom I called Abaji was actually my maternal grandfather. I called him Abaji because my mother called him Abaji. I also called my maternal grandmother Amiji following my mother. Rather than correcting me, my grandparents took pleasure in my childish behavior perhaps because they didn't have a son of their own. In the fiercely patriarchal Pakistani culture, not having a son is almost as bad as being childless. Abaji, my grandfather, had been a proud man in his youth. He was the first one in his village to go to college and the first one in his family to learn English. He graduated as an overseer from an engineering school and worked as a public servant, first for the government of British India and then Pakistan. An estimated 12 million Hindus and Muslims died during the ethnic cleansing that followed the partition of the Indian subcontinent into India and Pakistan in 1947. My grandfather, who was born and bred in East Punjab, followed most Eastern Punjabi Muslims in abandoning his ancestral home for Western Punjab, which became part of Pakistan. He avoided the fate of 6 million Indian Muslims who were killed by Hindu and Sikh mobs during their ill-fated journeys to Pakistan, in part because he was a member of the well-organized Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Caravans of Ahmadi trucks moved together sometimes under police protection, carrying thousands of Ahmadis from their headquarters in the East Punjabi village of Qadian to the West Punjabi city of Lahore, which became part of Pakistan. Once in Pakistan, the Indian refugees were offered a chance to claim properties in Pakistan abandoned by Hindus and Sikhs in lieu of the properties they had left behind in India. The head of the Ahmadiyya community, known as Khalifa, Allah's infallible viceroy on earth, advised Ahmadis against abandoning their Indian properties because Allah would soon victoriously return Ahmadis to Qadian, the small village where the faith had been born a bare half-century earlier in 1889. This meant that Abaji and thousands of other pious Ahmadis started their lives from scratch in the new country. Abaji did well enough to buy a house in the city of Gojra, where he raised his three daughters. When the Khalifa, whom Ahmadis affectionately called Azur, founded the new Ahmadiyya headquarters on the barren western shores of Chenab River in the early 1950s, Abaji bought a tract of land there as his future retirement home. The modest home that he built in Rabwa came in handy when he decided to arrange for his middle daughter to marry an Ahmadiyya missionary school called the Jamia Ahmadiyya student in 1967 who couldn't afford a home of his own. Abhijan, my biological father, stood out among the Jamia students for a number of reasons, not the least of which was his age. In his mid-twenties, he was almost a decade older than some of his youngest class fellows. In order to become a Jamia student, one had to take a vow to offer all of one's capacities in the service of Hazur without ever asking for anything in return. For a typical Jamia student, this was often done by the parents writing to Hazur to seek his permission to offer their children to God. These students would then enter Jamia as soon as they finished their middle school. In order to induce their sons to keep their word to Hazur, the parents would often promise to pay them a stipend for the rest of their lives. My paternal grandparents, who formed in a small village in Sialkot, Pakistan, did not 
offer any of their six sons to the movement. Instead, they supported their second oldest son's decision to become the first person in the village to go to college and study science. After graduating with a degree in physics and math, Abhijan took up a government job as a high school science teacher. It was after a few years of teaching that he received his calling from God and offered himself to the head of the community. Because Abhijan had essentially neither any income of his own as a Jamia student nor a parental stipend, my mother had to work outside the house to support the family, an indignity for a middle-class Pakistani woman. This meant that as the movement sent my father from one Pakistani town to another following his graduation in 1970, my mother had to stay behind at her parents' house and close to her job. Thus, when I was born, it was Abbaji who wrote the letter to Hazur, customarily written by the father of the newborn, requesting him to bless the newborn with a name. Hazur, perhaps thinking that the author of the letter was requesting a name for his own son, gave to me my grandfather's first name and wrote with his own hands, Muhammad Afzal, congratulations on Abaji's postcard. More than 46 years have passed, but that postcard is one of my mother's most prized possessions, not just because it is the first time that my name was written, but also because it once touched the hands of Hazur. Afzal can be either a comparative or a superlative term in Arabic, meaning better or best, depending on the context. Just as no English-speaking parents would name their child better or best, Arabic speakers do not name their children Afzal. By the time I was born, the persistent efforts of Ahmadi pioneers had managed to turn the inhospitable saline and rocky soils of Rabwa into the first planned city of Pakistan, fulfilling the divine dream of Rabwa's founder, the second Ahmadi Khalifa, and the son of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, who reigned from 1914 to 1966. The city of 40,000 entirely populated by Ahmadis served as the headquarters of the millions-strong worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Unlike Qadiyan, where Ahmadis had to cohabit with a large number of Hindus and Sikhs, Rabwa was city built from scratch by Ahmadis for Ahmadis. The Ahmadi officials, personally appointed by Hazur, not only served as spiritual guides, but also as city's civil administration. Rabwa was divided into 30 precincts, with a mosque serving as the focal point for each precinct. The community enforced complete gender segregation with separate schools and colleges for men and women. Women had to cover themselves from head to toe in a black burqa, with only their eyes showing when they had to leave their houses. The city had no cinemas because even Pakistani films promoted immorality by showing unveiled women. Anyone caught visiting cinemas in the neighboring city of Chinyot or caught violating any of the other numerous bans such as the ban against flying kites, the ban against males clapping publicly, the ban against celebrating birthdays, the ban against associating with non-Amadis, for example, by taking part in their weddings or funerals, was punished by excommunication and or expulsion from Rabwa. To encourage people to attend the daily Islamic ritual prayer of Fajr, groups of boys and young men went around shouting prayer is better than sleep at pre-dawn hours in the streets of Rabwa. We, the residents of Rabwa, took great pride in our status as the most organized and the most disciplined of all Muslims who were ready to sacrifice our lives to ensure a fulfillment of God's eschatological plans for making Islam the dominant religion before the end of the world. At our weekly boys' association meetings and later at men's association meetings as I grew older, we eagerly chanted our pledge to sacrifice my life, wealth, time, and honor for the sake of our faith and for guarding the institution of Ahmadiyya Caliphate. While the community sent my father to various parts of Pakistan and to other countries, we lived with my mother and maternal grandparents in Rabwa, where my mother taught at a girls' primary school. 
My father's first missionary appointments were in various Pakistani cities. So he must have seen me on one of his visits home, but I have no memory of that. When I became old enough to remember faces, he was working in West African nation of Ghana, where Jamaat had sent him in 1973. I learned of my father's face from the few black and white photographs that he had mailed us from Africa. These pictures looked eerily similar to Arthur's picture on the back cover of the well-known Ahmadi Urdu book on the Shroud of Turin. In his book, Hassan Muhammad Khan Sahib, a local celebrity defended the heretical Ahmadi doctrine, doctrinal position on Jesus' crucifixion. Imagine my surprise when I finally saw my father for the first time at the age of seven and he didn't look anything like Hassan Muhammad Khan Sahib. My father stayed with us in Rabwa for about six months before being sent to Mirpur Khas in Sindh province of Pakistan. The few times that I got to see my father between his various missionary assignments, I had never heard him complain about the few times that I got to see my father between his various missionary assignments, I never heard him complain about having to sacrifice his family life. In fact, I heard countless times from him and from other Ahmadis that sacrifices for the community were the real cause of any success, however small, that our family had had. My good health, my good grades in school, and my success in constantly ongoing religious competitions in Rabwa were all a direct result of my father's missionary vows. The early 1970s were a heady time for Ahmadis in Pakistan. Ahmadis believed that they had played a decisive role in the victory of the socialist Pakistan People's Party in Pakistan's first elections based on universal suffrage held in December 1970. They believed that the PPP would pay them back for their support by allowing them to preach unmolested which in their minds could only lead to one outcome, namely a quick acceptance of Ahmadiyyat as true Islam, first by all Pakistanis and then by the rest of the world. This elation turned into a deep sense of betrayal in 1974 when Prime Minister Zulfqar Ali Bhutto capitulated to the Sunni Mullahs demanding a constitutional amendment to declare Ahmadis non-Muslims. When Bhutto was hanged by the military in 1979, the atmosphere at the annual Ahmadiyya convention that brought hundreds of thousands of Ahmadis from across the globe into Rabwa every year for a long weekend in December was openly celebratory. There was a strong sense that prophecies predicting the destruction of any worldly power that took on God's chosen people had been fulfilled in front of our eyes. With the centennial of the community's founding only a decade away, we were eagerly anticipating people joining Ahmadiyyat in droves. I remember frequently running into the community's official historian, Maulana Dost Muhammad Shahid, who worked at Khilafat Library two blocks from our new house in the foreign missionaries colony, where we moved in 1983. Every time I saw him, he would ask me, what would my age be in the year 2000? when people around the world would be flocking to Ahmadiyyat. Will I be ready to accept the hordes of non-Ahmadis, desperately looking for anyone knowledgeable enough about Ahmadiyyas to save their souls? The fact that the world was going to be saved through Ahmadiyyat was not in any doubt. What was doubtful was whether we as individuals were willing to play our role and gain salvation for ourselves. At the daily religious lectures that were delivered following the evening prayers at our neighborhood mosque, at our weekly atfal meetings, at the yearly Quranic education classes, and at the annual Ahmadiyya conventions, we were routinely told about the success that Ahmadi missionaries such as Abhijan were having in converting non-Ahmadis to Ahmadiyyat around the world. This success proved that God was on our side. While both my dads were proudly faithful Ahmadis, their faith styles differed from each other. Abhijan had the cerebral faith of a born-again scholar, having heard God's calling after studying and teaching science for years. My father had spent seven years in Jamia Ahmadiyya Missionary School learning the minutia of theological arguments. He had traveled around the world, engaging people of all faiths in religious debates. 
They set him apart from most other Ahmadis, such as my Abaji, who hadn't read all the books of Hadith or Ahmadiyya doctrine or traveled widely, but had a strong emotional attachment to the Jamaat and a firm belief in the supernatural. This included a belief in the miraculous powers of the Khalifa and an irrational reverence for anyone, such as the family of the founder of the Jamaat or anything connected to the founder of the Ahmadiyya Jamaat. My grandfather would get extremely upset if he heard anyone saying anything that he perceived as insulting towards a member of the Khandan, hundreds strong progeny of the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement who lived in a gated area in central Rabwa. Similar to most devoted Ahmadis, my grandfather endeavored to give ever more of his meager resources to the community. Not content with the contribution with contributing the obligatory 116th of his modest government pension to the movement, Abaji wrote to Hazur to grant him permission to donate one-eighth. Once he was allowed to do that, he wrote another letter asking for permission to contribute one-fourth of his income. Once that request was granted, he asked the proportion to be increased to one-third. Hazur, to his credit, denied that request. Abaji refused to take no for an answer and kept writing. To be more accurate, he kept asking me to write because by this time he was too old to write himself. Until he, has, he had his way. Had he lived longer, I'm sure he would have requested permission to donate one half of his income and eventually all of it. In 1979, when the third Ahmadi Khalifa, grandson of the founder of the movement who reigned from 1966 to 1982, launched a decade-long campaign to raise funds to celebrate the centennial of the founding of the Ahmadiyya movement in 1889. Abaji sold his house in Gojra and donated the entire proceeds to the Ahmadiyya Centennial Fund. I don't think I ever saw him happier than he was on the day he received an invitation to a private meeting of the major donors with Azur. He had my mom put starch on his new shalwar kameez and his white turban that he proudly wore to the meeting with Azur. He'd face his face beaming with happiness at the prospect of being able to spend time in the physical presence of God's infallible regent on earth. While I barely knew my absent father, my grandfather was my role model. Like him, I would get up well before sunrise to offer the optional tahajjud prayer. I prayed for Allah to make me a success both in the secular and the spiritual worlds, like my Abaji. I wanted to be ready to play my part in God's plans for the end times. During the Jalsa, when we had a house full of relatives from across Pakistan, I led everyone in the ritual prayers, just as Abaji often did at our neighborhood mosque. I read the Quran first in Arabic and then translation in Urdu, first from Abaji and then from Maulana Zakaria Khan Sahib the community's official Albanian language translator. I read the books by founder of the community and his successors. I eagerly enrolled in the Talimul Quran classes and took part in competitions of religious knowledge, rhetoric, and Arabic recitation. Above all, as did my Abaji, I internalized being a good believer as a critical part of my identity. I still remember some of the verses of my favorite childhood poem that I used to sing to anyone who would listen. We are the Ahmadi kids. We'll do something big. We will abolish Satan's government from earth. Don't worry for us. We are not weak. When the time comes, we'll even sacrifice our lives. We are Ahmadi kids who will do something big. Islam will make Islam everyone's beloved religion. I think I was seven years old when I memorized the whole poem and sang it for a delighted Abaji who kissed me on the forehead. He had the face of a revolutionary filled with the satisfaction of having passed his revolution to his son. I always sided with my grandfather 
when on occasion his strict interpretations of Islam contradicted with what seemed to me back then relatively more liberal interpretations of my parents. My mother enjoyed listening to Indian and Pakistani songs on radio when she cleaned the house. This, this used to irk Abaji, who found the lyrics to be lewd and distasteful. According to him, the only acceptable use of a radio was to listen to news. Radio Pakistan news and BBC Urdu service news that came at the end of every hour. As his eyesight became weaker, I became his eyes and his hands. I mastered the fine art of tuning the radio to receive the hard-to-catch BBC Urdu signal. I also decided to do a bit of research into the Jamaat library. I also decided to do a bit of research at the Jamaat library and found a hadith expressing displeasure with music. With Abaji's approval, I plastered handwritten notes with these ahadis all over the house in Rabwa. With Abaji's approval, I plastered handwritten notes with these ahadis all over our house in Rabwa. I did the same thing at the missionaries' quarters in Karachi in 1979, posting anti-smoking ahadis everywhere when I heard that my father enjoyed an occasional cigarette when he was alone. He never smoked in front of us. On such occasions, my parents made fun of my overly dogmatic attachment to religion by calling me a Maulavi and Imam Manja, the prayer leader of the beds. At other times, when I was not annoying them with my self-righteousness, they asked me to pray for them because they said God especially listened to my prayers. Somehow, I had acquired the identity of being the most devoted Ahmadi in a family of extremely devoted Ahmadis. Ahmadis believe that belief in a living God who talks back when people call on him distinguishes them from other non-Ahmadi Muslims who believe that God has only communicated with holy personages in the past. Cultivating an active communicative relationship with God is an aspirational goal for all Ahmadis. From my grandfather, I also inherited the sense of a personal relationship with God. Throughout my childhood, I felt that not only was God listening to my prayers, but that he was also actively telling me things by showing me his signs. One of the signs of God's special favors for me was shown to my eighth grade public school teacher, Master Nazif Sahib. Just a month or so before our dreaded middle school standard exam, our homeroom teacher at the Talimul Islam school called me to the front of the class to tell the whole class about a supernatural experience that he had had in the early hours of that morning in February 1983. He said that as he was walking in the dark from his house to the mosque for the morning prayers, he heard a distinct voice saying, Muhammad Afzal Scholarship. This, he said, was Allah himself foretelling him that not only would I top my competitors in Section A, but that I was destined to score high enough marks to earn the coveted government scholarship in high school. The fact that the prophecy revealed to Master Nazir Sahib came true and I won top positions in middle school and then in high school and then college, as well as in religious competitions organized by the community, only reinforced my identity as God's chosen one. Growing up poor, on the mean streets of Rabwa without an older brother or a protective father, I found security in the belief that I could always count on Allah. It was comforting to know that there was someone there who always had my back. I wish that I could describe in words the sense of purpose, meaning, and joy that comes from knowing that you have a direct channel of communication with the Creator and all-powerful Lord of the universe. Sometimes, late at night, especially when I'm having trouble going to sleep, I think about how I lost that feeling, and I cannot point to any single event, but I think that it all started with the typical teenage rebellion and Abaji's passing away in 1989, the Ahmadiyya centenary year that he had so longed to see. My grandfather's death was one of many factors, including an opportunity for my mother to take an early retirement with government pension, a decline of Rabwa's status as a Mecca for Ahmadis following Hazur's move from Rabwa to UK in 1984, and general economic malaise in Pakistan, which made moving to West a trend among Ahmadis that convinced my parents that we should join our father in Canada. 
as luck would have it, by the time we got our immigration papers and arrived in Saskatoon, Canada, Jamaat had decided to send Abhijan back to Africa, this time to the small West African city, country of Gambia. This meant that as I arrived in Canada, I had to find my own way in a radically different world. Saskatoon of the early 1990s seemed as different a place from Rabwa as possible. When we arrived there in December 1990, streets were covered with some white powder, locals called it snow, instead of the brown dirt that littered Rabwa's streets. When the sun came out, the weather got colder and not warmer. People drove on the right side of the road and not on the left side. People called football soccer and they called something resembling group, rec group wrestling football. Women had shorter hair and wore more revealing clothes than men. Everything seemed upside down. The most bewildering thing was that this opposite world somehow seemed to work better. My father put it best when he said that if the Hadith's cleanliness is half the faith is to be believed, then clearly Canadians are better Muslims than Pakistanis. Many of the egalitarian ideals that Ahmadis claimed to aspire to, such as justice and equality of the rich and poor, seemed closer to being met in the West than they were, than they ever were in Rabwa. Instead of finding any Western converts that I expected to find given what we were told in Rabwa about the success that Ahmadi missionaries were having in the West, the only Canadian Ahmadis I met were Pakistani Ahmadis who had immigrated to Canada. Instead of finding droves of non-Ahmadis wanting to convert to Ahmadiyyat, I found Canadians by and large apathetic to the message of Ahmadiyyat and Islam. Instead of finding immorality, injustice and moral filth in the West, as proclaimed by Ahmadi leaders as well as by many other Pakistanis, I found the West to be a pretty nice place to live. All of that shook up my worldview and made me question that maybe everything I was told was not as true as I thought that it was. This made me open to West's liberals narrative that the road to egalitarianism rests on a foundation of constantly questioning authority and not in blindly following it. When I enrolled in the University of Saskatchewan's computer science program, I was required to take social science courses to fulfill my breadth requirements. I chose philosophy and anthropology classes. I found the social science and humanities approach of adopting multiple perspectives quite refreshing. This was opposite to the experience of many of my fellow computer science students who were baffled by the lack of consensus among social scientists on issues of fundamental importance to their disciplines. Afflicted by typical immigrant fear of not finding a job, I just could not muster the courage needed to change my major to social sciences. After completing my PhD in computer science, however, I continued my own reading of psychology, anthropology, and philosophy while working as a computer scientist. The more I read about the theory of evolution, the less certain I became of the traditional Islamic explanations for the beginning of life and human existence. Most of the Ahmadis who move to the West do not go through this transition and I have often wondered why not. Why do people continue to hold blind faith in cult leaders in an era of instant information and social media? I have spent most of my adult life contemplating these questions as well as other questions that my friends and family ask me. Not a day passes that my mother, my in-laws, my siblings, or my friends don't ask me as to why I'm not as active in the Ahmadiyya community as I used to be during my childhood. Why don't I take a place of honor, distinction, and leadership in the community that my talents and lifetime of achievements would surely bring me? My family and friends genuinely do not understand how I could have so easily given up the blessings of Ahmadiyyat and lost my enthusiasm for true Islam. My scientific colleagues, on the other hand, do not understand how and why any rational person could believe in cultish ideas such as those proclaimed by the founder of the Ahmadiyya community and held in such high esteem by most of my family and friends. Only simpletons can be brainwashed by cult leaders into blindly following them, argue my scientific colleagues. This book is both a deeply personal account of my struggle 
to find answers to these puzzling questions and a scientific account of why new religious movement founders come up with their counterintuitive ideas and why others accept them and join new religious movements. Section 1.1, Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. The founder of Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, was born in the Punjabi village of Qadiyan around 1839. He was the younger son of the village chief, Mirza Ghulam Murtaza. His family was part of the Central Asian armed bands that moved into east, moved eastwards to India along with Mughals who ruled India for centuries before losing most of their territory to Marathas and Sikhs in the 18th century. Ahmad's family lost their estate, including their ancestral home, in their capital of Qadiyan to the Sikhs, only to be allowed back around the time of Ahmad's birth. By the time Ahmad was 10, the Sikh rule over Punjab ended, marking the culmination of the Anglo-Sikh Wars of 1846-1849. After the British crushed the 1857 mutiny of Indian soldiers, a quick restoration of Muslim dominance over India seemed impossible. The British occupation also hastened the pace at which Punjab was exposed to new ideas and technologies. These included schools and colleges that taught an ever larger number of Indians how to read and write, and new technologies such as the printing press that allowed mass production of books, pamphlets, and journals in English as well as local languages, particularly Urdu. Ahmad, the younger son of a feudal family, was well positioned to become an early adopter of the new media because he had the luxury of time and money. Ahmad, while in his 30s, started writing articles defending Islam against objections by Hindu revivalist movements and Christian missionaries. These efforts were lauded by the small, literate Indian Muslim elite. This encouraged Ahmad to dream big and launch the ambitious project of publishing a 50-volume series that would comprehensively rebut all Hindu and Christian arguments against Islam. The first volume of the series, Barahine Ahmadiyya, published in 1884, stated that the goal of the series was to establish Islam's superiority over all other religions, particularly Christianity and Hinduism. One of Ahmad's key arguments was that unlike Christianity and Hinduism, Islam endowed its faithful followers with the ability to communicate with the living God who supported them through his signs. Ahmad offered the evidence of this in his own dreams that had come true and the divine revelations that he had received about many future events, including the death of his father. Ahmad challenged Hindus and Christians to come to Qadian and live there at his expense for at least a month so that they could see, they could witness firsthand how God still showed his signs through him. While some Muslim clerics were bothered that Ahmad was claiming too much spiritual powers, especially the power to show miracles for himself, Others lauded Ahmad's noble attempts to defend Islam at his own expense. Either way, Ahmad was unapologetic in insisting that he was doing all this only to prove Islam's superiority and to save Muslims from converting to Hinduism and Christianity. In the late 1880s, Ahmad came to believe that Christianity was the bigger threat facing Islam and that traditional Islamic doctrine had left Islam vulnerable to Christian attacks. He believed that these doctrines needed to be reformed. Ahmad blamed the Muslim belief in Jesus having escaped crucifixion by being raised to heaven as the key culprit. He said that evangelical missionaries were arguing that this showed that Jesus was superior to Muhammad, who lay buried underground in Medina. Missionaries reminded Muslims of their own eschatological beliefs in Jesus' physical descent from heaven towards the end of times to bolster their arguments for the superiority of Jesus over Muhammad. Ahmad claimed that God had told him that Jesus had survived the indignity of crucifixion and had traveled to India where he died a natural death. Furthermore, he said that since the old Jesus was dead and could not return, God had appointed him as the Messiah of the end times because he was similar to Jesus in many ways. These claims lost Ahmad any remaining support among Muslim notables, who now almost uniformly criticized him 
as an innovator and a false prophet. Ahmed felt the need to call on his supporters to sign a formal oath of allegiance to him. Such oaths had traditionally been used by Sufi teachers to formally accept those seeking to learn from them as their students. Forty people gathered in the Punjabi city of Ludhiana on the morning of March 23, 1889 at the house of one of Ahmed's supporters to sign their pledges. A decade later, he asked his followers to register themselves as Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat in the 1901 India census, cementing their status as a distinct religious community. Ahmad made paying one-sixteenth of one's income as a condition of membership in the Jamaat and established an and established organizational offices called Sadar Anjuman in Qadian to administer the funds. He established a press in Qadian that published Urdu and English periodicals and books. He also established the tradition of holding annual Ahmadiyya conventions called Jalsa Salana in Qadian in December. Despite almost universal opposition by Muslim clerics, or perhaps because of it, Ahmad continued to gather new converts. He claimed thousands of middle-class followers by the time of his death in 1908. Ahmad's best friend and his biggest financial benefactor, Hakim Nuruddin, assumed Jamaat's leadership following Ahmad's death as the first Ahmadi Khalifa. After Nuruddin's death in 1914, the community split up into two factions. While Ahmad's son, Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, assumed the role of the second Khalifa of the larger faction of Ahmadis who stayed in Qadian, a smaller number of Ahmadis moved to Lahore and set up a rival faction. The Ahmadiyya Muslim movement of Lahore claimed that Ahmad was not a prophet but a lower-ranked reformer called Mujaddid, and hence he should not be succeeded by a Khalifa but by an administrator. When the British partitioned his South Asian colony in 1947 into Pakistan and India, Qadian fell on the Indian side of the border. This forced the Qadian faction to move their headquarters to Pakistan, first to Lahore and then to Rabwa. After Bashiruddin's death in 1966, his eldest son, Mirza Nasir Ahmed, assumed the role of the third Khalifa. On September 7, 1974, Pakistan's parliament unanimously adopted the Second Amendment to the Constitution to declare Ahmadis non-Muslims. On Nasir Ahmad's death in 1982, his stepbrother Mirza Tahir Ahmad became the fourth Khalifa. On April 26, 1984, Pakistan's military dictator issued an ordinance, later approved by Pakistan's parliament, which made Ahmadiyya proselytization an integral part of the faith, a crime punishable by a jail term and a fine. Three days later, Tahir Ahmed moved to London to avoid prosecution under the new law. In 1989, he dissolved all international Ahmadi organizations, formerly headquartered in Rabwa, and moved many of Jamaat's offices to Tilford, UK. Upon his death in 2003, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's great-grandson Mirza Masroor Ahmed became the fifth Khalifa. He resides in London, UK. The book has a table showing differences between Ahmadiyya doctrine and the mainstream Sunni Muslim doctrine. And another table showing a timeline of events in the Ahmadiyya history. Section 1.2 Scholarly Studies of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat the origin and spread of Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat has confounded both historians and scholars of religion. A curious religious phenomena in Indian Islam has been the advent of Ahmadiyya movement, wrote the eminent scholar of Islam, Fazlur Rahman. Historians remain baffled as to how a group that is regarded as so outside mainstream Islam attracted enough followers to remain viable until now, said scholar of religion Shazi Ahmad. Reviewing Friedman's book, Prophecy Continuous, which deals with Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's various claims, Fuzzfeld wrote, the relationship between the Ahmadiyya movement and the political, economic, and social environment as distinct from its intellectual origins is largely un under unexplored. 
There is never any satisfactory explanation offered to show why the founder of the Amdiya movement chose to take positions that were so outlandish when viewed from the perspective of mainstream Islam. How he benefited from taking a position on the finality of Prophet that many other Islamic leaders viewed as beyond the acceptable boundaries of Islam. Why the Ahmadiyya came to be in such an unorthodox and from the point of view of other Muslims, unacceptable positions. Fuzzfell, 1992, page 347 to 348. Fuzzfell faulted the traditional approach of to new religious movements for its shortcomings to explain their origin and growth by exclusively appealing to sociological factors. The Amdiya movement was to a large extent the result of one person's view of the world he found and his efforts to come to grips with problems he perceived. If the solution was a peculiar one, it may owe its peculiarity to the person who made it work, said Fuzzfeld on page 348 of his book. Ahmadiyya is not the only religious movement to have been influenced so profoundly by the radically innovative ideas of its founder. Many new religious movement founders, such as Joseph Smith, Sun Young Moon, and Mary Baker Eddy, appear to have based their respective movements on similar innovations. Joseph Smith who lived from 1805 to 1844, claimed to be a prophet and apostle of Jesus Christ. He also claimed to have received divine knowledge of the journey of a group of Israelites into Western Hemisphere. Smith believed that he was given special powers to interpret this lost knowledge into English. Using these powers, he composed the Book of Mormon, which is considered a scripture by most members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Mary Baker Eddy, who lived from 1821 to 1910, claimed to be a God-appointed messenger who was chosen by God to give full and final revelation of truth. According to the Church of Christian Science, she is so closely related to Christian Science that a true sense of her is essential to the understanding of Christian Science. In other words, the revelator cannot be separated from the revelation. Similar to Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, Sung Yang Moon, who lived from 1920 to 2012, also claimed to be the second coming of Jesus. He claimed titles of the Messiah, the Lord of the Second Advent, and Father of the Universe. Reverend Moon also claimed the Koreans were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. It is clear that no explanation of the radically innovative ideas of these new religious movement founders can be complete without looking inside the head, heads of these individuals. A scientific explanation must be able to answer questions such as how and why do NRM founders invent radically new ideas? How and why do they communicate these ideas to others? And how and why others come to place their faith in these ideas? In a 2005 article towards a cognitive science of new religious movements, I argued that this can be accomplished by complementing the sociology of new religious movements by a cognitive science of new religious movement. The first goal of this book is to fill more details into the broad outline of the theory presented in that article by developing a multidisciplinary theoretical framework drawn from cognitive science of religion and social psychology, in particular social identity theory and leadership as social identity change entrepreneurship. The second goal is to illustrate how this socio-cognitive account of the origin and evolution of new religious movements can be used to understand the origin and evolution of a real-world NRM, namely the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat. Section 1.3 Approaches for Studying New Religious Movements Religion is one of the most fascinating aspects of human life. Since time immemorial, it has provided answers to ultimate questions of existence for some people from a variety of cultural traditions. It motivates some people to offer sacrifices for the good of their fellow human beings. It provides a sense of meaning to many people's lives. It brings communities together by binding people in social ties of friendship. While questions of 
The origins of new religious ideas may perplex modern people living in largely secular societies. They have not been systematically investigated until the rise of modern social sciences. Studies of new religious movements gained strength in the West with the emergence of Eastern-inspired movements in the 1960s. While there is no consensus on what constitutes a new religious movement, the label is usually reserved for religious movements of historically recent origin, founded in the last 200 years or so, that have been assigned to the fringe of dominant religious cultures. Bainbridge and Stark categorized the existing research on the origin of new religious ideas into three groups, the psychopathology model, the entrepreneur model, and the subculture evolution model. While the first two models emphasize the role played by individuals, particularly the new religious movement founders, the subculture evolution emphasizes the group interactions processes that can lead to the emergence of new religious movements without guidance by any individual. I will spend some time on the first two models because they are relevant to the development of a bottom-up model of religious innovation. According to the psychopathology model, the Annaram founders suffer from various mental illnesses which cause them to have psychotic episodes resulting in hallucinations of having received divine wisdom. Havelock Ellis suggested that most of the Israelite prophets were psychologically ill when he said that the whole religious complexion of the modern world is due to the absence from Jerusalem of a lunatic asylum. A view which is consistent with Freud who considered religion to be a projection of neurotic wish fulfillment which should be treated with therapy. Religious, religion scholar George Feuerstein argues that NRM leaders are authoritarian personalities who want to control their followers. After examining a number of religious movement leaders including Shabbatai Zwi, Jim Zones, David Koresh, and Rudolf Steiner, the British philosopher Colin Wilson concludes that NRM leaders have psychological problems similar to those suffered by serial killers, namely that they are driven by power and sex beyond the normal limits. A number of psychological problems have been alleged to result in the claims of special divine insight by religious leaders. These include epilepsy, hysteria, paranoia, and schizophrenia. Mary Baker Eddy's inspiration of Christian science is often cited as the classic case of hysteria. The British psychiatrist Anthony Storr argued that people such, a, such as Rudolf Steiner, Paul Brunton, Ignatius of Loyola, Gurdjieff, Rajneesh suffer from creative illnesses that lead them to the creation of novel ideas. When the American scholar D. Harvey Devitt Griswold asked an Indian Muslim about Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's claim, he was told that Mirza Sahib's brain has become muddled. This opinion concerning the Mirza Sahib is similar to the opinion of Festus concerning Paul. In connection with the theory of Mirza Sahib's insanity, it may not be without interest to mention that at least two persons in the Punjab who are acknowledged to be insane have lately claimed to be Jesus Christ, one a weaver of Ludhiana and the other a former student of former Christian college, Lahore. The madness of the latter takes the shape of writing periodical letters to the principal of the college and arguing that his claim to be Messiah be speedily admitted. In the light of these facts, the theory that Mirza Sahib himself is insane is certainly a possible one. Griswold, 1902, page 25. Another unnamed American psychologist who visited Ahmad was so convinced that Ahmad's revelations were a result of a brain disease that he directly asked Ahmad, have you ever been affected with a brain disease? If so, what and when? Does its attack recur? Did you begin to have revelations before you suffered from an attack of such disease or after that? After narrating these incidents, Reverend Howard 
Arnold Walter opines that I am indebted to Professor D.B. McDonald of Hartford, USA for the suggestion here advanced as perhaps best accounting for Ahmed's claim and so-called revelations viewed in the light of our modern knowledge of psychology is that Ahmed, like his great leader Muhammad, the founder of Islam, is a pathological case. It is evident that from comparatively early days he had trances, fell into fits, which he saw and heard strange things. There came to him voices, either apparently in a trance condition or when he was awake. Driven by fear for his soul, he had got into the habit of retiring into desert recesses and there spending days in solitary prayer. So there are voices. So there the voices came to him. There he even saw figures, vague, dim, and fear fell upon him. What are they? What is the matter with me? Is this of God, or am I possessed by some spirit? Walter, 1902, page 45. The image of religious innovators as social deviants is so well entrenched in popular culture, perhaps thanks to the tireless effort of so-called cult hunters, that often little or no evidence is considered necessary to justify accusations of mental illness against them. However, as popular, widespread, and intuitive as this view is, we still must subject it to scientific, scientific scrutiny so that we do not fall prey to what philosopher Dan Dennett calls premature satisfaction of curiosity. Well, let us take the mental illness hypothesis seriously and fully explore all its implications. One of the unfortunate consequences of mental illness is that the people suffering from the illness are stigmatized in a variety of ways. Surveys show that people are wrongly believed to be stupid, lazy, unpredictable, unreliable, and dangerous. This appears to be the case both in Western industrialized societies of North America and Europe, as well as in non-industrialized societies of Asia and Africa. Unlike religious innovators, whose adoring followers consider them as sources of divine knowledge, counterintuitive utterances of mentally ill people are ignored at best and ridiculed at worst. A recent survey of UK mental illness sufferers showed that a vast majority reported suffering stigma as a result of their illness. A majority also reported being stigmatized by their own family and friends. Similarly, a vast majority of Americans considered mentally ill people to be dangerous. Furthermore, there is no historical or anthropological evidence that mentally ill people were respected for their wisdom and insight in the past. It is fitting that it is fitting then that life stories of religious innovators such as Ahmad show no history of a debilitating mental illness. Not only were they considered normal and healthy by their peers, they were actually respected by their followers and sometimes even by their opponents for their intellect, their wisdom and their insight. Dr. Griswold, for instance, describes that he found Ahmed to be about 64 years of age, venerable in appearance, magnetic in personality, and active in intellect. Newberg and Achille, in Why God Won't Go Away, argue a subtly different position. They argue that some founders of religion were mystics who learned to experience a different state of consciousness through spiritual exercises. This extraordinary state of cognition offered these people a unique view of reality which was more real than reality itself. After studying brain scans of Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns in meditation, Newberg and Dickily concluded that the meditative experiences of these mystics were not delusions or the result of emotional mistakes or simply wishful thinking, but were associated instead with a series of observable neurological events. They concluded that mind's machinery of transcendence may in fact be a window through which we can glimpse the ultimate realness of something that is truly divine. Another common explanation for the behavior of religious innovators is that they are charlatans, frauds, and con artists who make sensational religious claims for financial and material gains. Religious scholars Shoup and Bromley summarize this view as arguing that religious movements are profit-making ventures operated by egomaniac charlatans for their own personal aggrandizement. 
Shoup and Bromley, 1981, page 186. A problem with this view is that vast majority of neuroreligious movements make little or no financial or material profit for their founders. More commonly, the religious innovators end up losing their fortune, family, and friends because of their claims. They end up losing sociological and financial capital. They end up losing social and financial capital that it took them years to earn. Their willingness to suffer abuse solely because of their views and their refusal to reconsider their claims when presented with overwhelming material incentives to do so suggests that they sincerely believe their claims. Even though Ahmad's status as a feudal lord and the efficient British Indian law and order machinery mostly protected him for, from physical abuse, he still suffered tremendously because of his claims. None of Ahmad's family members who inhabited the same village as he accepted his prophetic claims. They included his first wife and their children, his siblings, his cousins, and his uncles. His cousins were so strongly opposed to Ahmad that one of them called him a cunning schemer. Mirza Imaduddin erected a wall to block Ahmad's access to their family mosque, forcing Ahmad to go to court against Imaduddin. Strong opposition by Ahmad's sons and cousins also played a critical role in preventing Ahmad from contracting his third marriage. Having claimed divine support for the marriage, Ahmad had to suffer significantly when his own wife and son convinced parents of the young bride-to-be, Muhammadi Begum, to reject Ahmad's overtures. Anti-Ahmadi Muslims continue to use this episode in their polemic against the community to this day. One of Ahmad's friends and a prominent Ahlehadith leader, Muhammad Hussain Bartalvi, who had earlier played a critical role in promoting Ahmad as a defender of Indian Islam, renounced his friendship once he heard of Ahmad's prophetic claims. He swore to take Ahmad down. Bartalvi traveled throughout India asking Muslim scholars to issue a fatwa of kufr against Ahmad. Kafir was not the worst name Muslims called Ahmad. Bartalvi called his former friend by much worse names. Raving drunkard, intriguer, swindler, accursed, the one-eyed Dajjal, slave of silver and gold, whose revelation is nothing but a seminal discharge. Shameless, the ringleader of sweepers and street vagabonds, dacoit, murderer, whose followers are scoundrels, villains, adulterers, and drunkards. That the Qadiani is a Dajjal of this time, a second Musalama, perfidious deceiver, cheat, liar and imposter and that he is the enemy of faith of Islam and all other heavenly faiths. According to Griswold, Batalvi was not alone in condemning Ahmad. Many North Indian Sunni Muslim leaders stood with Batalvi against Ahmad. In the numerous fatwas which Mohammedan associations all over India have issued against Mirza Sahib, the strong words of denunciations are used. Thus he is called Kafir, the unbeliever, Dajjal, Antichrist, Mulhid, Heretic, Murtad, apostate, Kazab, liar, Beiman, faithless, Dagabas, deceitful, etc., etc. With such epithets as these is the certificate filled with which Mohammedan orthodoxy has dismissed Mirza Sahib from its fellowship and service. Griswold, 1902, page 20. In his, in his 1889 book, Kitab-e-Bariya, it took Ahmad six pages to summarize the damning words used by his former friends and supporters among the Aliyadis. As a result of the vitriolic anti-Ahmadiyya propaganda by Muslim leaders, on several occasions Ahmad was physically assaulted by mobs when he traveled outside his home village of Qadiyan. In 1905, while lecturing in Amritsar, he was pelted with stones. When Griswold asked the aforementioned Indian Muslims about Ahmad in 1902, he was told that if Muslims such as the Emir of Kabul were the only authority here, Ahmad would have lost his head. This was by no means the isolated opinion of a man on the street, but Talvi said the same thing. Had we been under Muslim rule, we would have given you, Ahmad, a proper reply. We would have at once cut off your head with a sword and made you a dead body. Two of Ahmad's followers, who had the misfortune of living under the authority of the aforementioned Amir of Kabul, were jailed, tortured, and publicly stoned to death. Their families were exiled to Turkestan. At each successively brutal step in their torture, they were offered a chance to recant 
their faith in amal but they refused choosing death over worldly gains if religious innovators are not mentally disturbed or charlatans then why do healthy and seemingly rational human beings make the radical claims that they do stark and brain which developed their entrepreneurship model of religion to answer such questions they consider nrm founders to be entrepreneurs who produce market and sell compensators in exchange for other rewards a compensator is an unverifiable promise of a future reward that is in low supply or unavailable at present according to stark bainbridge theory in situations where some rewards are in short supply or are not available at all people are willing to accept compensators in lieu of the actual reward for instance a religious founder may be able to sell the unverifiable claim of life after death to those agents that intensely value immortal life entrepreneurship theory's most useful contribution is highlighting the similarities between the role of an entrepreneur and an nrm founder who also has to fashion a new product market it and sell it elaborating these similarities has allowed the use of economic analysis tools for explaining the high rates of religious participation in societies with more religious pluralism such as the us as compared to religiously homogeneous societies such as sweden however the stark bainbridge entrepreneurship model falls short of a complete theory as it does not explain as to why nrm founders invent and propagate these new ideas that seem so radical to most of their fellow group members and why some people buy these ideas in this book i will reserve the term radical to refer to those ideas that are considered to be so outside the pale by the primary target audience members invariably the group members whose interests the nrm founder is claiming to defend that they consider the nrm founder to be a deviant and not a full-fledged member of their group the multidisciplinary approach i outlined in my 2000, 2005 article builds on stark and bainbridge's entrepreneurship theory as well as developments in the new field of cognitive science of religion social identity theory and leadership as social identity change entrepreneurship cognitive science of religion assumes that ordinary cognitive processes result in creation and spread of religious ideas and that special mechanisms devoted to religious cognition are not needed to understand religion barrett calls it the naturalness of religion thesis much of what is typically called religion may be understood as the natural product of aggregated ordinary cognitive processes this perspective may be called the naturalness of religion thesis much as language is naturally acquired as a result of cognitive preparedness plus exposure to a typically social linguistic environment ordinary cognition plus exposure to an ordinary environment goes a long way towards explaining religion barrett 2000 page 29 the cognitive science of new religious movements which i proposed in 2005 subscribes to cognitive science of religions naturalness of religion thesis and focuses on connecting macro level phenomena of religion to micro level cognitive processes i assume that most nrm founders and believers are rational agents functioning in ordinary states of consciousness the task for cognitive science of religious movements then is to identify the ordinary cognitive processes that cause nrm founders and believers to behave in ways that most observers find outlandish and result in social ostracization of the nrm founders and their followers by the very community they claim to be saving We will see that many of these processes are social psychological in nature. They are initiated and led by people who believe that their religious group's prosperity will be enhanced through a change in their shared beliefs and seek to sell that message of change to their fellow group members. These community members who buy this idea become their followers and those who seek to preserve the old belief system become their primary opponents and their chief persecutors. As we will see in chapter 4, I caution against the tendency among some cognitive scientists of religion who argue that universality of cognitive explanations blunts the need for understanding the socio-cultural and historical context that leads to the creation and spread of radical religious ideas. Indeed, I strongly believe that an explanation of religion that focuses solely on the universal cognitive processes that are common to all human beings is doomed to fail. 
universal cognitive processes simply do not provide a complete explanation unless they are instantiated in a particular sociocultural context that is investigated by historians of religion. Thus, a history of religion is and always will be a necessary complement for a cognitive science of religion. This also means that unlike most other cognitive science of religion works that you may have read, we will be doing a deep dive into the history of 19th century India to fully understand the context which led Mirza Ghulam Ahmad to develop his ideas that resulted in the establishment of Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat and led people such as my maternal and paternal grandfathers to accept his innovative religious claims.